Welcome to Unraveling the Anthropocene, Race, Environment, and Pandemic, a podcast series brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective, or LAC, at the Pennsylvania State University. As an interdisciplinary group, we promote visionary scholarship in the humanities, we build community across different fields of study, and we highlight the ways that different disciplines inform and shape one another. You can find more information about our previous events on our website, sites.psu.edu backslash liberal arts collective. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic this year, we have developed this podcast series as an intervention into our global ecological emergency. In our discussions with scholars, activists, artists, and community members, we address how global ecological crises both impact and are impacted by political turmoil, widespread outbreaks of infectious disease, and racial violence. Hi, and welcome back to Unraveling the Anthropocene. In this episode, I, Marbe Tabor, will be having a conversation with Mark Sentesi, Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Classics and Ancient Mediterranean Studies at Penn State. Mark Sentesi works on conceptions of nature and philosophy, science, technology, and culture to address the problem of how human beings fit in the natural world. His research ranges from the ecology of the Epic of Gilgamesh to the relationship between conceptions of community and nature in the early Greek thinkers, the origins of physics in ancient Greece, and energy and justice issues in climate ethics. His book Aristotle's Ontology of Change was published in April 2020. Mark formerly led the energy policy team for 350MA. He also co-wrote Penn State's Ethics of Climate Change Interdomain course and is a founder of the Climate Crossover an initiative to make climate a course in every discipline across the university. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for joining us. I'm super excited about our conversation today. In our previous episodes, our guest speakers discussed various contemporary approaches to understanding human relationship to nature. In your research, you focus on both ancient and modern conceptions of nature. So I would like to begin by asking you how ancient views on human relationship to nature compared to our modern-day understandings. What are some major differences and similarities? Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm interested in ancient philosophical approaches to nature uh, and literary approaches to nature because I think that we have a number of assumptions about the status and place of human beings in the natural world. For example, our ascendancy, the fact that we think of ourselves as clearly having conquered the natural world and the idea that that ascendancy promises us unlimited improvement of our lives in the in the future through technological progress for example these are things that have become more commonplace in modern understanding of nature because of our technological development and it's sort of part of the way that we think about ourselves in the anthropocene so i'm looking at figures who who are earlier in the history of uh, of our version of civilization uh, the one that I would call the Anthropocenean civilization so among those include uh, I include Gilgamesh Gilgamesh I think is in a way the first king of the Anthropocene he's the first leader the first ruler of the Anthropocene and he, the poem Gilgamesh is a very ambivalent, ambiguous poem in a lot of ways. 
uh, a little bit like the ways that the, the Greek stories of their heroes are not necessarily uh, um, stories about good people. And I think that the Greeks were conscious of the, uh, the fact that their heroes were problematic in many ways. Um, so Gilgamesh in the poem is presented initially as someone who is like deeply appropriative, right? That he, he's like the, the, the forerunner of the extractive industry, <laughs> right? He pillages his, uh, not only the natural world, but also his own people and his, his city. And so the central problem that Gilgamesh sets in front of us uh, is uh, how do we respond to that? The central pr problem that Gilgamesh brings up in the poem is the rejection of the goddess of fertility and of the natural world from the city. Uh, and the central accomplishment that is heralded uh, at the very beginning of the poem is that that goddess, Ishtar, has been enshrined in the, in the heart of the city. So at the very beginning of our civilizational discourse about our relationship with the natural world, we have this story about the ejection of nature from civilization and then the problem of how to reincorporate it. So I look at the ancient world as, as having uh, providing insights into why we are an Anthropocenean civilization and what the core anxieties and dynamics of that civilization are. So I could say more about some of the contrasts um, apart from the fact that, uh, that ancient civilization and ancient philosophical thinking, ancient literary thinking was dealing with issues that are directly relevant to our current predicament, if you like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So one of the main assumptions that we have in our modern physical understanding of the world is that the, the world is made up of machines, that organisms are actually, if you really get down to it, uh, machines, bi chemical machines, uh, physical machines, biological machines. This conception of the world as a machine has certain assumptions that come along with it, uh, including the idea that machines don't have their own purposes. They're all determined by the thing that constructs them. And that everything has been determined by, uh, by something outside of it. Uh, so the idea that the world is a machine kind of leaves the world open to, to our exploitation and leaves, leaves the world open to us reshaping that world for our own benefit. And the, the early modern thinkers, Descartes, Leibniz, Bacon, right, they were quite explicit about this, about the advantage of thinking about the world as a machine. Leibniz says that if we thought of organisms as actually having their own purposes, then we would all have to become vegetarians, <laughs> like the Pythagoreans. So, so, okay, so there are certain ethical consequences of thinking about the world as a machine. So one of the interesting things about our contemporary way of thinking about the natural world is that no one really contests that idea, uh, well, <laughs> apart from philosophers, in the, in the broader culture, very few people fully contest that, that idea on scientific grounds. So it's useful to look at the history of philosophy and, look, and to see how different figures in the history of philosophy uh, thought about the order of the natural world 
in non-mechanical terms, and then also to trace the, the origins of the idea of the machine on the one hand, what a machine is, is not obvious. So tracing the origin of the machine on the one hand, and then the idea that the, the world could be a machine. So tracing the very contingent process of development of, of this very prevalent underlying conception of the world back to the ancient world gives us more resources for responding to it. That's fascinating. I was going to ask you about the definition of a machine. So what is meant by a machine? What makes something a machine? And what role do humans play in the system of the world as a machine? Great questions. Yeah, so, so if we are, because we are part of the world, then to the extent that we are part of the natural world, we must just be machines. If we are a part of the world, and the world is conceived as fundamentally as a machine, then we are necessarily machines to the extent that we belong to the natural world. And that is supposed to remove all sense of purpose and meaning and so on. And this is one of the things that drives the movement of existentialism. So existentialism is a response to the meaninglessness of the cosmos under this regime of, of a classical mechanical view of the world and the domination of, of the conception of nature by physics. So what is a machine? In the birth of the modern physical understanding of a machine, there are a number of different suggestions for what a machine is. The one that won out in the end is Newton's conception of the machine, which is that no things are moved by themselves. No things move themselves. Everything is moved by the application of force from something else. And that application of force follows a pathway that is determined by the mechanical structure of whatever it is that you're considering. So as a result of that, you can say that all there is is configuration and force. And configuration is something that comes to be because of forces that, that, that set the configuration in the way that it is. So, so that's the modern conception, parts outside of parts. But that isn't the only conception, even in the early modern understanding. Julien Dauphray de la Matrie has a very interesting conception of machines in which machines can perceive and they can do ethics and they can speak. Uh, and he points to the, the ways that different animals communicate as well as the innovation of language in people. So you can either take machines to be like, to reduce us to the sort of basic forces of the world. One thing applying it, itself a force to another thing. Or you can, as Matri does, try to understand that material mechanical world as uh, higher than, than we thought. So a, a less reductive way of thinking about the natural world. But there is a whole other side to this, which is the, the, the kind of social political side. The old use, the ancient Greek use of machine denoted and automata uh, was importantly related to slaves. So to be a machine, to be an automaton, in a political context anyway, in the ancient world, to be a slave. So uh, Georges Canguillem, who's a French philosopher and, and sociologist of science in the mid-20th century, made an interesting argument that the properties of the natural world that we assume to be basic physical 
properties, namely, if things are machines, then there's no purposes to them. Those are not actually like the purposelessness of the natural world is not a property of the objects in physics. That's a political property. That's what slaves are. Slaves don't have their own purposes. Slaves are the ones who take on the purposes of the people who orga organize them and order them around. So his argument is that, in fact, the political dimensions of the conception of automata and of machines are the ones that have really decided the way, the way that our physicists conceive of the natural world. So you can see there are a lot of resources for, for uh, working on an issue like that in the history of philosophy. So approaching this issue from a sociopolitical perspective, can we say that the conceptualization of the world as a machine is bringing up questions of agency and representation? And I also think that this idea of the machine as that which cannot represent itself, this sounds like an outdated definition of the machine. I'm thinking about artificial intelligence and robots. What do you have to say about that? Right. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> there are so many things to say about artificial intelligence and artificial organisms. I think what I would like to do is focus more on the problem of, of reduction. The problem of artificial intelligence is interesting philosophically, not because you end up with something with a device that can accomplish things. We've done that forever. <laughs> Uh, the problem of artificial intelligence is interesting because it raises the question of what it means to be an organized being, what it means to be uh, an organized intelligent being. So I think there are really two problems that come up when we talk about, about artificial intelligence. One of them is, can life forms actually be put together through underlying sort of elementary processes? Are organisms really just the operation of underlying laws of physics? Or is there a dimension about beings, especially intelligent beings, that is not reducible to the spin of quarks and the strong force and the weak force in atoms, right? So, so the question that artificial intelligence poses really is a problem of emergence. What does it mean for different levels of organization to emerge from or be related to underlying levels of organization. So I think that that question is a, is a problem of, of what, what life is. Is life just the combination of mechanically combined chemicals? <laughs> or once something clicks together, once you have a, a form that maintains itself, for example, reproduces itself, heals itself, then have you created something that has a kind of its own level of analysis that can't totally be reduced to, but is still not any different necessarily from the underlying processes. That, that question of emergence, I think, is really important. And the, the answer to that question through the history of philosophical thinking has been quite varied. The assumption these days is that everything is reducible to the underlying interactions between materials, but that's not what Aristotle argued. Uh, it's not what uh, Maitri argued. <laughs> there are a number of different possibilities for understanding the status of emergent beings. If you do have a conception of that once certain phenomena have emerged at a higher level to have a, a, a set of or, or like an organizing, once you have the emergence of 
a higher level of phenomena, then you can start to talk about ethical properties of these of these beings in a way that you couldn't talk about them when you're talking about the, the, the relationships within atoms or between chemicals in a compound. So the possibility of ethics depends in part on our conception of machines as a whole, but also in part on how we understand emergence. So within this framework, the Anthropocene becomes an existential question. And as a literary scholar, of course, I'm thinking about the role language plays in defining these ethical questions. Is there any intention or purpose to life? Are humans just machines? What role do you think language plays in defining intentionality, agency, and ethics? It will be interesting to think about how language contributes to the emergence of this machinery you have discussed. Is language itself a machine? I'm asking this question because language is often seen as that which separates humans from non-human beings. But there are other ways of thinking about language as part of nature, as an agential being. So what are your thoughts on the question of language? And secondly, I would also like to ask you about periodization because the working group on the Anthropocene defines the Anthropocene as starting in mid-1950s, but there are alternative views. Some trace it back to the beginnings of agriculture, some to the Colombian exchange. You said Gilgamesh could be seen as the first ruler of the Anthropocene. So what do you think about this kind of periodization as a scholar of classical philosophy? How would you periodize the Anthropocene? Three great questions. Let's start with the last one. I presented Gilgamesh as the first king of the Anthropocene because he, in rejecting Ishtar, is rejecting Ishtar from, from a point of view that is, he, he's disrupted. He's already disrupted from a sense of belonging with the natural world. And that's highlighted by the fact that his sidekick, as it were, his uh, rival and sidekick, Enkidu, is conceived of as a, as a fundamentally natural being, someone who can go to the watering hole and hang out with the other animals and none of them are afraid of him. Whereas the civilized person is dangerous to the natural world because at least the poem presents it this way, because civilized desi the desires of people in civilization are totally unlimited. They are unnaturally extended, that people are appropriative in civilization in a way that they are not in nature. A lion is not dangerous when it's full, but a human being who has a full stomach is dangerous because we will continue to pursue and acquire the things that we want. And Okay, so Gilgamesh is presented as, as already being a creature of civilization in, in contrast to Enkidu. That doesn't mean that Gilgamesh represents the, the birth of certain civilization. The, we can think about civilization more broadly as certainly preceding Gilgamesh. People were intelligent and organized in societies before Gilgamesh. And probably even the other, the other hominids in the, uh, the other hominid species also had forms of civilization that, that would be fascinating to know about. But the reason that I think Gilgamesh is the start of the Anthropocene is because Gilgamesh is fundamentally wedded to, uh, to a technological overcoming 
a conquering of the natural world. And the anxieties that lead him to that position are the things that, that dominate the development of the technological urban civilization after that. The technological urban civilization that comes after that is the, that's the birth of the Anthropocene, as I see it. And you can ask the question, when does the Anthropocene begin by looking at when the record appears in the, in the historical, physical layers of the earth, right? You can look at where it appears in the, in the geology, but you have to have a culture that produces those effects. So I consider him to be the cultural father of the Anthropocene for those reasons. So yes, the Anthropocene is an existential problem. It's an existential problem for many reasons. If we just look at climate change for a second, climate change forces us to make decisions about our values, about who, who and what communities we are, going to, we are going to protect, about what we want our society to be in the future. But it's also an existential problem, not just for the, those social political reasons, it's an existential problem because it requires us to reinterpret and to rebuild our, our, industrial, our industrial civilization on the premise that we belong to the natural world. We have to rebuild our civilization on the premise that we are actually part of the natural world. Because so far, industrial civilization has developed under the premise that we are not part of the natural world and that we are relating to it in the, in the relation of the master and possessor, uh, as Descartes put it. So our appropriative premise has been written in the roads that we drive on, in the factories that build our, the things that we, that we use in our homes, in the way that we build our homes. So that's an existential problem because re reinterpreting and uh, reinterpreting our relationship with the cosmos as a whole means reinterpreting what our place and purpose is in the universe. So it's an existential problem for that reason as well. Now I'm setting aside the idea or the possibility that there will be a collapse of civilization, even though I think some people are perhaps legitimately worried about that. That's an existential problem in a different way. <laughs> but from a philosophical point of view, the, those are really important reasons for thinking about, about the Anthropocene as an existential problem. So let's see, about the language problem, this is quite interesting. So one way to consider language is to consider it as a, a form of technology. That would look at language and discourse in general as having a structure that arranges and rearranges the activities that we do and the relationships that we have with each other. So the way that cell phone will connect you with people who are scattered all over the city or all over a country and in in doing so also disconnect you from your neighbors <laughs> so cell phones do that writing does that it changes the relationships now people can read each other's work and criticize it and they can examine each other's ideas they can write down laws and then as soon as you write down laws, you have a new category of person, namely a judge who interprets the law. <laughs> so writing changes the structures of society. Science and philosophy are both, they both have certain sort of machines of discourse, if you want to call them that, 
So peer review is a good example of a discourse machine where someone submits a paper for evaluation and then gets some responses, uh, yes or no. It's vetted by their peers and so on. And the idea is that produces truth or something closer to truth anyway. So if you see language as operating like that, as, a, as the medium that configures our, our lives and our relationships, then it, it can be quite powerful how you know, the different forms of interaction, the different forms of communication are fundamentally formative for our societies. Now, I want to ask you about your methodology. You define philosophical anthropology as one of your main fields of research. How does philosophical anthropology differ from philosophy? What kinds of sources do you use? Do you do any fieldwork? And you have already touched upon this, but perhaps you could elaborate further. What do you think is the significance of a philosophical approach to addressing environmental issues like climate change or the pandemic today? So philosophical anthropology is different from the way that anthropology is practiced in departments of anthropology, which is largely a, a, an investigation into different forms of community. So different forms of community are certainly important to, to philosophical anthropology, but the focus of philosophical anthropology is what a human being is. What is it to be a human being? And that includes everything from a discussion of what it is to have a body to how thought works to the forms of community that we have, the impacts of language on identity formation, what identity is, <laughs> what our place in the natural world is, right? So philosophical anthropology examines the full range of the question, what is it to be a human being? And I think it's funny that it, it usually requires the, the preface, it requires the word philosophical in front of anthropology because anthropology in terms of its cultural analyses doesn't necessarily deal with issues of the philosophical issues of physics or our conception of the good and the community's relationship with the good, our belief in the way that our minds are related to our bodies, although it can, right? The philosophical anthropology takes those into account in a way that I think is really interesting and powerful. So the way that I approach philosophical anthropology is by looking at human societies and, and our civilizational structures, our dynamic, the dynamic systems that construct our civilizations. I try to look at those systems to read, as it were, what the fundamental premises are or what the fundamental assumptions are about what a person is, how they belong in community, and how that community is related to the natural world. So I'll give you an example. I just published an article in the fall on um, Protagoras, who is an ancient uh, Greek sophist. Protagoras makes the argument that human beings come into the world unequipped, that we come into the world naked and without any natural advantages or tools, unlike all the other animals. The other animals have claws or horns, or they can climb really well, or they run fast, or they swim. They all have some kind of nature that they can make use of in order to survive. But human beings, he says, uh, don't have a nature. We don't have any advantages. We're helpless. And, you know, babies are pretty helpless, right? <laughs> they are 
living out the fourth trimester of uh, <laughs> outside the womb. But the conclusion from that, that Protagoras draws is that human beings need technology. So technology is then grafted on to human beings because of our apparent helplessness in the world. And that is a tremendously persuasive and powerful and prevalent assumption in our society today. It's also something that we ought to contest. <laughs> it's something that does not seem to be right in, in many ways, not least because in order for a human being to be born helpless for the first three months, you, you need society before that. You need a society who can take care of the mother and the child so that, uh, so that just to make it possible evolutionarily for a baby to survive in the first few months of its life being so helpless. So society was already there. <laughs> society shapes our biology and makes possible this understanding of what a human being is and what a human, how a human being is related to the natural world. So philosophical anthropology looks at stuff like that. That's one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in. Hobbes, uh, another figure who is a giant in political philosophy, Hobbes thinks that the state of nature is a, is a war so that nature, all the, all the things in the natural world all want to survive and thrive, but because they're fighting against each other, they tear each other up and they can't actually accomplish their goal. So in other words, nature is divided against itself and nature cannot give itself what it wants. So what, what's required? The intervention of the technology of the state. <laughs> You need a human technological inter intervention, which is a contract combined with the police to enforce that contract. So that is, that's also a tremendously powerful fundamental assumption that presents human society as a technological achievement. It's, it's a technical accomplishment. And so the, these assumptions need to be questioned and uh, examined, not least because the cooperative side of biology and the cooperative side of human relations can account for society in ways that, that don't require the assumption of a technical uh, domination, right? The fear of the, of the Leviathan in order for them to function. So those are some examples of how both of what philosophical anthropology is <laughs> and of how those issues touch on what our fundamental relationship is with the natural world. And that fundamental relationship with the natural world is essential now because we have to renegotiate our relationship with the natural world over the next 50, 100, 150, 200 years. But that's the main project that if we do not pass that project, if we don't pass that exam, then human civilization will either disappear or completely change. Well, let's put it this way. To be sustainable means that you can go on. <laughs> if we are not in a sustainable civilization, our civilization will not continue. And whatever is sustainable will. So no matter what, our civilization will end up being sustainable, whatever, whatever is left. So we need to build those sustainable things as much as possible. And a philosophical the contribution to that problem looks at, at those issues that I was mentioning philosophical contribution to that issue includes work on the philosophical anthropology. So how we understand our relation to the natural world 
and the attending issues that come with that. So how do we reconfigure our economic system to take account of the, the importance of nature and our embeddedness in the natural world? How do we change the way we understand industrial design and the processes of production to take into account and to respond to the inextricable relationships between our technology and the natural world? So philosophy can help to, to reframe the way that we approach those problems. Another major area that philosophy can contribute in relation to environmental issues is to think about human ethics and ethics in relation to the, to the natural world, and in particular, draw our attention to issues of justice and climate justice, for example, inequalities, the, the ways that we distribute the impacts of environmental damage to certain communities, philosophy can help to analyze why those things are happening and give us ways to guidelines to reshaping those practices. Thank you, Mark. You have provided a very clear and informative description of the field of philosophical anthropology and the philosophical questions that you are invested in. I would like to pivot our conversation to your teaching experience and to your pedagogical approach to questions of environmental justice and ethics. You mentioned that you have co-created Penn State's Interdomain Climate Ethics course, which will also be available as an online course. First, could you define climate ethics for our listeners? And secondly, how does the concept of climate ethics relate to environmental justice? Thanks. So I'm really excited about this project. And before I give you a definition of climate ethics, let me say that a lot of people are really excited about this project. It's now being taught on five campuses at Penn State, and it, it will we will add World Campus and others. But it's a very challenging course because it's an interdomain course, as you mentioned. Being an interdomain course means that somebody from meteorology has to be able to take it for meteorology credit. <laughs> Somebody in religious studies needs to be able to take it for religious studies credit or philosophy. They need to be able to take it for philosophy credit. So it has to do all of those things very well. And the challenge, of course, is that no one initially is qualified to do those things. <laughs> so that's because climate change is the, is the ultimate interdisciplinary issue. So the reason that climate change is visible as a phenomenon is because of physics. The normal temperature variation on a given day is bigger, much bigger than what a person could detect just standing outside. So climate as an issue is not visible to us without the tools of science. And the causes, of course, are not also not visible to us without the tools of science. But as soon as we discover the issue scientifically, that issue is immediately an ethical one. How should the world be? what are the impacts of climate issues, uh, of, of climate change and global warming in general. So the reason that you see a lot of climate scientists also with much difficulty take up advocacy roles is that climate change is an inextricably ethical issue. To give an example of that, a couple of weeks ago, I gave a talk as a part of the Earth Talks series at the uh, Earth and Environmental Systems uh, Institute. Um, so they they invited me to talk about 
climate issues. And I spoke directly about how the forms of organization of our society determine how the impact, how the impacts fall. So why is it that most people who died in the Chicago heat wave in 1995 were black uh, or Latina? So you can't look at climate impacts on a purely physical basis. Those impacts happen in societies. They happen locally. And those societies have certain structures that mean that some people are more vulnerable than others. So if you're going to understand climate issues, you have to understand environmental vulnerability. So climate ethics, then, is the understanding of climate issues, ethical issues related to climate change, that range from how it is that how it is that a society produces these issues to how we perceive the issues scientifically and how it is that science is fundamentally related to ethics on this the, the fact value distinction here is uh, it does it does not hold <laughs> right stating the facts of climate change require us to to think about values and then thirdly the issue of how impacts are distributed in the natural world and through our structures of society. So climate ethics is a huge issue. It covers a, a very, very wide range of, of topics. But one of the areas that I want to concentrate on most in the class is, is how it's an opportunity for us, an opportunity for people to decide what we really care about and to make our societies better. The, a lot of people think that when you teach a climate ethics class, really what you're doing is coming up with the best possible argue, argument for acting on climate, which happens incidentally in the class, but that isn't the main focus. Climate ethics challenges us in a way that is incredibly useful because it allows us not only to, it, like the coronavirus crisis, right? We see some of the existing inequalities between different racial groups we see the ways that the, that the society uh, is problematically structured, right? We see the ways that some people don't have access to education the way that others do. We see how air pollution, living with air pollution is a pre-existing condition for coronavirus and it makes it the virus much more deadly, right? So like the coronavirus crisis, the climate crisis exposes the problems in our society and presents us with the opportunity to make those better, to solve them, because action on climate change can solve many problems at once. It creates more jobs, right? Many more jobs, uh, even more jobs than fossil fuel industry uh, promises. It saves lives, so it, it helps to protect vulnerable people. It reduces the, the cost of medical care in our society and so on and so on. So climate ethics, I try to show, is an opportunity for us to think about what we care about and then to think practically also about what policies we can enact that would in fact bring about that better world. So environmental justice then is not just, and climate justice in particular, is not just about evening out the distribution of, of suffering. <laughs> it's not just about saying, okay, so, right, like 22% of black people in Pennsylvania have elevated levels of air pollution and suffer from asthma and so on at a much higher rate than, than the white folks in Pennsylvania. And what we need to do is figure out how to, how to even out the amount of asthma that they have. No, 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 
we should eliminate asthma altogether. <laughs> so climate confronts us with the, the problem and the possibility of solving those problems is present in the way that those problems are challenging us. Well, the ethical aspects of the Anthropocene and of environmental issues keep popping up in our episodes. These are issues that we had in mind when we came up with this podcast series, the way we framed it as unraveling the Anthropocene, race, environment, and pandemic. We wanted to talk about how populations are differentially impacted by environmental destruction and violence. That is one of the most interesting things for me, and it's become much clearer in the last year uh, since the coronavirus started taking over our society. I think that one of the most interesting things for me has been, it was always clear that communities that were largely minority communities suffer at a much higher rate from pollution. So for example, Black people have 75% more chance of living in a polluted area and the single largest predictor of where a toxic site is going to be placed is the race of the people in the neighborhood. So it's quite clear that they've suffered for a long time from those issues and that that's an ongoing part of the overall processes of systematic racism that really affect people of color in our society. But it's also, to me, quite interesting to see how how the public discourse shifts as soon as... It, it's interesting for me to see how the ways that our society's industrial structures and our ongoing investment in those industrial structures necessarily creates these communities that are being sacrificed for the benefit of others. And a sacrifice community is not new. Sacrifice communities have included uh, the animals that we domesticated in order to feed ourselves and to plow our fields and that sort of thing. They've included slaves. They've included the working class in the factories. And they've included the places where, among other things, mining companies, fossil fuel companies have gone to extract resources and it's much more convenient for them to do so when those communities are disrupted and can't defend themselves. So when I'm saying those things, I'm not alleging intent necessarily, although it is certainly the case that's, that many of those issues are caused by people intending to take advantage of these populations. What I'm saying is that the idea of sacrifice zones it's built into our industrial civilization. It's built into the way that we produce things. It's built into the way that we develop them and consume them. It's built into our responses to them. So one really interesting thing from last spring was that as soon as folks started to see the disproportionate impacts of the coronavirus on communities of color and other minority communities, among certain media outlets, the necessity of action dropped dramatically, right? They were no longer calling for action on coronavirus the way they were when Tom Hanks got coronavirus, right? So the idea is like, if it can strike you know, the wealthiest white guy, right? The most robustly American white man, then it's all hands on deck. But as soon as you realize that it affects the people who are working in the grocery stores and the meat factories, the people who are who are driving the buses, the people who's who can't survive without going out into the into the public world, who can't feed their families without working every day outside the home. As soon as you figure out that those people who are disproportionately racialized in our culture are the ones who are primarily affected, then the calls to action greatly diminish. And that was amazing to me because 
not being an American, I'm not really that familiar. I'm still learning a lot about what the racial dynamics are here, but to see that like that, that line was so clear, as soon as the impacts are affecting the sacrifice community, people are okay with it. And so that notion, the idea of that, those types of communities is a deeply problematic way that we have configured our civilization ethically. That's what makes inaction on climate possible. That's what makes it easy for people to ignore the impacts of climate and easy to push the snooze button on the climate emergency because it's just going to affect a bunch of brown people somewhere, right? That's the way that The Onion put it. Like, <laughs> do you know The Onion newspaper? <laughs> yeah, 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 I do. The satirical newspaper said, there was a headline back into the mid 2000s, like 30,000 brown people dead somewhere, right? That, that was the headline. It's, it highlights the, the callousness of our culture in relation to minorities and people of uh, color. So going back to your climate ethics course. Yeah. I'm curious what kinds of pedagogical strategies you, you use in discussing these topics in the classroom and are there any creative or experiential assignments that you've come up with that you found particularly useful in teaching climate ethics and how it relates to questions of racism and environmental violence? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm very excited about teaching about climate issues and environmental issues and created that the climate crossover, which is something that I hope that people who are listening to this podcast participate in or feel inspired to join. The, the goal of the crossover is to get climate into every department and, and as many classrooms as possible across the university, because every single discipline has something to say about it. So, uh, so yeah, so one of the pedagogical principles of the class is that climate is an intractably interdisciplinary issue. And so I welcome people from across the university to talk to my class. And this has been part of its design from the very beginning. We have people from biology, meteorology, we have modelers from, from the uh, College of Earth and Mineral Sciences. We have people talking about feminism and community values. Uh, we have people talking about policy and the formation of policy. So we really try to, to show its interdisciplinarity by bringing in people from, from across the university. So that's, that's really important. Uh, I've already said something about how seeing every obstacle as an opportunity is really important to the approach that the class takes to the issue. That's in a way to help students deal with the gloom that they feel. Students are terrified about this issue and you can really see it in some of the projects. So, so, so let me tell you about the projects. So one of them is uh, a conversation project. So because climate is an issue that is deeply underserved in public discourse, Right. Back in 2018, there was a total of, what, 147 minutes of coverage on climate change in the whole year on cable television. And so 147 minutes and 60 of those were in one episode, like they were in one show. So it's it was abysmal in 2018. 2019, it got much better. 2020, it's crashed again. What we need is a, is people to come out of the class able to talk to anybody about climate issues 
feeling comfortable bringing up these issues. So what we do in the class is we talk about how, about different resistances that people might have to talking about climate issues or about ethical issues in general and how to respond to those. And then I ask them to go out and have a conversation with people from outside the classroom and then to analyze that conversation and looking for opportunities and insights and that sort of thing. That is a tremendously powerful thing. Most people in the class have never prepared for a conversation like that. And they discover that there's far more insight that they can get by being attentive to each other and by keeping conversations respectful and caring and by just by learning how to listen to people. So that's really important for that conversation project. This last year, I, I created a, a kind of a follow-up project, which is a correspondence project. It was an exercise in the ethical imagination. So the idea is that they play the role of, of someone who has discovered a correspondence between various people, someone who lives in the, in the year 2100, who has discovered this correspondence between people and is interested in unpacking how climate change has affected their lives and tracing out the effects and actions that people took in the 20th, 21st century. And some of those honestly were so powerful that they, they literally made me cry as I was reading them. They were so powerful. Some of them were so dark and despairing that it was really terrifying, right? I, they, could, they could choose whatever future they wanted. <laughs> it could be you know, one in which we completely solved the problem. It could be one in which we didn't at all. And some of them were just feeling the, the anxiety that they had about those things was really quite powerful. And then some of them were totally ordinary, right? One person wrote an analysis of a correspondence between, between two students who were sophomores at university and their life was normal, right? And that was the point <laughs> that after all of this transformation to, in this case, to a fossil fuel-free society, they were concerned about all the normal things, about having a boyfriend or a girlfriend, about you know, what they're going to do next in their lives. And that was also really powerful. But the, I think the, one of the cornerstones of the class is the final project, which is a negotiation project. It's like a, a mock uh, conference of the parties where different students are divided into groups representing different countries or blocks of countries. And they all bring proposals to the, to the table and we try to come to an agreement about how the, how the world should proceed in fulfilling its, its climate obligations. And that's always quite interesting. The, the people find it the practical necessity of, of doing the things that are best for their country are sometimes, sometimes involve some really difficult decisions. <laughs> And that insight and working together to produce those proposals, I think, is quite interesting for students. So it's also just really fun. <laughs> yeah, these all sound amazing. And I wish I could take this course. <laughs> you should come by. <laughs> it sounds like so much fun. It's creative. And you're equipping students with practical, applicable skills to become climate change advocates in real life situations so it's That's what not we hope. just <laughs> theoretical 
I mean, I would just say that that's usually a criticism of philosophy, that it, it's too cerebral or too theoretical and conceptual and not enough application. So you're kind of also pushing back against that perception of philosophy and showing, you know, here are the ways in which we can use a humanities education, a philosophical education, and, you know, yeah. training students to become better advocates for environmental justice. And I want to link that to my question on what role um, do literature and the arts play in this class? Do you teach any literary texts or artistic works? So one of the assignments has this kind of creative aspect. They're speculating on the figure. Mm -hmm. So do you use any like speculative fiction works uh, or like what do you think about the role literature plays in general in communicating these questions on climate ethics? I do use some moments of speculative fiction they tend to be short because the class is so packed. I, I was joking with, with one of my co-teachers on this that if I, so there was a, a day that I was sick, right? And I was trying to decide whether I should just cancel class or whether I should go into class. This is before the pandemic. And I decided to go into class because I thought if I skip this class, then I'm going to have to sacrifice something like I'll have to cut the class on renewable energy, for example, <laughs> right? Which is my way of saying there was only one class on renewable energy because there's so much to talk about in this issue. There, every single class has something absolutely, from my point of view, absolutely essential to talk about. Yeah, so it's so packed. But yes, we do use some speculative fiction in the, in the class as a way to develop students ethical imagination, right? Or to put it in the terms that our textbook puts it, their moral vision, having a moral vision, having a sense for what positive world we are building, what, what we're going towards, the thing we want to choose for and not just to flee away from. The environmental movement has not had sufficient moral vision. We've had a lot of threats, a lot of dangers and impacts that rightly captivate people's attention, but people haven't very well developed a, a picture of the positive world that can emerge if we devote ourselves to action on these issues. And as a result, the, there's a kind of a vacuum in our moral vision that gets filled with the idea that all action on environmental issues involves sacrifice, that it's all a kind of penance. It's an atonement for our sins against nature or something like that, that all action on environmental issues is a kind of ascetic response where we get deprived of something we have to give something up but that's not necessarily true we might be able to if we do it well <laughs> create a world that is just good where we're not giving things up that, but that we're choosing even better things so yeah so speculative fiction is one way that you can help cultivate people's ethical imagination or their moral vision about the world and i have to say people are, don't have a very positive view of how the future is going to be. And, and so our ethical imagination is really emaciated. So I think speculative fiction is really important. And in fact, so this book, this book called The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, one of the people who's teaching the climate ethics class this semester is using this book. Students are going to read the whole thing as that's going to be the, the backbone of the second half of the course. 
and I'm really excited to hear how that goes because I can't imagine it would go badly. The, the book is very interesting, very concrete. And the main thing that people still need reinforced, the main thing that people need to learn coming out of the climate ethics class is that we should be devoting ourselves to action on this issue. And people still don't. So I devote a third of the class to, to action, different types of action on climate issues but it's not enough. People still come away somehow dislocated from, from a deep understanding of what action needs to look like. And this book, The Ministry for the Future, will definitely help concretize that, what it means to act on climate. Yeah, before we close it off, uh, you already mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson's book, but I wanted to ask if there are any other books or um, artistic works or movies that, that you would recommend to our listeners who are interested in exploring the question of climate ethics? Well, I think that Naomi Klein has a few books that are, are really worthwhile on climate issues. I think that Naomi Klein's books, um, On Fire and This Changes Everything, these are important because she presents climate as a fundamentally social issue, and one that involves the racial and economic complex of our society. And she presents climate as requiring major decisions about the form of organization of our civilization, which I think is right, even if I disagree in part with, uh, with some of her concerns. But I think the most important thing is that in tying climate to those issues, she opens up the possibility of a positive set of actions on climate, that we can make the world better by acting on climate. And she, she presents those issues very concretely. So that's really helpful. The Ministry for the Future is a really good book on this question too. So I think that Naomi Klein, I think, connects climate to social issues in a way that is really important and presents us with opportunities for positive action. David Wallace Wells' book, The Uninhabitable Earth, is really important on the subject of climate because I think he rightly identifies the fact that we, we are not freaked out enough about climate issues. It's important when you're, when you're planning for a society to, to last, you have to consider the worst case scenarios because to the extent that those are risks, then you need to at least be aware that those risks exist. And he presents a really compelling case for the importance of, of climate impacts and the, the really vast scope of these impacts on our lives. But I'm also interested in, of course, the history of our ecological problems. So, there are a couple of books. There's a book by Evan Eisenberg called The Ecology of Eden that's very interesting. It's, it looks at the, the climate and the ecological catastrophes in the Fertile Crescent where Gilgamesh appeared, but also sets up the, the climactic context for some of our, our forebears, uh, some of our ancestors and their ways of relating to the natural world. So their climatic context affects how they inhabit the world and how they see their place in the world. And therefore ours as well. 
And then there's there are books by Jared Diamond, the book called, uh, on collapse, which I think is interesting, looks at ecological drivers of collapse and a green history of the world, which is also an interesting account of civilizations and their relationship with their ecology. So we can learn from how old civilizations confronted and failed to solve ecological problems because we are in a situation that is very much like that. Yeah, these are all great suggestions and our listeners can find a, a list of Mark's suggestions on our website. Thank you so much, Mark, for this amazing conversation. It was a pleasure Welcome. to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for, so much for having me. Unraveling the Anthropocene is brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State. This series was made possible by sponsorships from the University Park Allocation Committee, the Department of Comparative Literature, the Department of Spanish, Italian and Portuguese, the Rock Ethics Institute, the Humanities Institute, and the Center for Global Studies. We at LAC thank you for your support. This episode was produced by Merve Tabur. Be sure to subscribe and follow along wherever you get your podcasts, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time!